I want to ask you this morning to turn your attention to Proverbs 23, Proverbs 23. And uh, it's no secret, today's Father's Day. It's not really a religious holiday. It's certainly nothing biblical about the concept of having one day set aside for fathers, but nothing wrong with our making an effort to look at what the scripture says about what a joyous or a happy father is. You know, what is it that brings legitimate happiness to a father? But how can a message like this, and I think this must always be a dilemma for some, but how can a message like this, how can a message of this nature be helpful for those whose children are already grown? What difference does it make or could it make at this point whether their children turned out to be wise or not? If their children turned out to be foolish, faithless, irresponsible, selfish adults, this might only be a discouraging message perhaps. They turned out to be responsible, productive citizens, but have no interest in Christ. A message like this might just steal what very little joy they have in their children, some might think. If their children turned out to be wise, righteous, faithful, helpful, responsible adults, then they might be tempted to become prideful from a message of this nature. But here's the benefit for those whose children, regardless of how responsible they've become but have no faith in the true Christ. Whether having rejected all things religious or having embraced a false Christ or a false gospel, there is hope because there is always hope while a person still breathes. There is always hope for the parent to find the grace of Christ, the grace of God to be increasingly exhibited in his or her life such that it would in fact have impact on the unbelieving or irresponsible child. That's how a message like this can and should be encouraging. You see, if you change, your children will certainly observe and be moved by your change. But I think there might be nothing more prideful than the parent who says, I raised my children in the Lord and I just don't know what happened. You see, unless your parenting was flawless, you have no right to this statement. And your parenting, just like mine, is not flawless. But what then should parents do if their children are grown? Same as the parents with young children. Be faithful to Jesus Christ. And be faithful to him specifically by being humble. Be teachable. Trust Christ. Praise him for your faithfulness and success in parenting. If you've experienced that, praise him. Give him the glory. Give him the credit. And confess your weaknesses and failures. Be honest about both. Jesus Christ is perfect. The one who walks with him and in him does well. Your failures are not his, but your victories are. Declare his glory and declare your lack thereof. Find much hope in the person of Christ, not only to bring you as an individual the rest and the joy that comes from Christ and from Christ alone, but find Christ to be good and gracious and loving and reasonable to use you to produce an awakening in your children, whether they're one year old or 60. While you're breathing and while they're breathing, there is hope. There is hope. 
In 2 Timothy 2, verse 10, Paul speaks these very rich words. He says, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. It's a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Is that encouraging to you? I hope it is. When you have been faithless, when I have been faithless, that doesn't dent his faithfulness. It doesn't influence it at all. He is faithful. He is always faithful. He can't be unfaithful. So whether in your faithfulness or in your faithlessness, Christ remains steadfast, true, not a moving target. Every person in your life, including you, is a moving target of one sort or another. Hopefully that target is becoming more and more and more inclined and more likened to the image of Christ. But we're all moving targets, not Christ. Not Christ. He is good, he is righteous, he is perfect. And in your failures and in my failures, we must not become defensive, comparing ourselves to others, saying, look how much better I'm doing than that person who's clearly not doing very well. And looking at those who are obviously doing better and saying, well, those people are just fanatics. It's really prideful for us to think of ourselves as the center standard by which everything must be measured. We must think of Christ and his perfection. We are told, be perfect, even as your Father is perfect. And so where we have failed, it's one thing for us, and we should. It's one thing for us to declare our failures. It's quite another, though, to find joy and rest and comfort in his lack of failures. There's a strong sense in which the pressure is off. I don't mean by that that you're not called to be faithful and you're not called to work hard at your sanctification. We, we looked at that last week and two weeks prior to that from Romans 5 and 6. Sanctification is hard work, resting in the grace of Christ, obeying him because he fully obeyed his Father. But my point here is that if you are to find joy in this lifetime and if you are to find wisdom and righteousness in this lifetime, it will be because you keep your eyes on the person of Jesus Christ. How can a father be a joyous father, a happy father? I was listening to a radio program yesterday where the hosts were discussing what fathers most want on Father's Day. One, a brand new father seemed to have absolutely no ability to even think about what might make him happy on Father's Day. The other, an older man without children concluded that men want quiet rest and food. Some would say, tools. I have a close friend who insists that every time he starts a project that that's justification for buying a new tool. You might know that guy. It might be you. <laughs> it might be me. Some think that a new tie is the way to go for fathers to make them happy. Favorite meal. And then this, this might be more common than any, just time with the kids. My father-in-law says that frequently. I just want time with you guys. I just want to spend time with you and enjoy the grandkids. And, and that's always a blessing, and, and many families enjoy that same great joy. But what is a father's real joy? What is it that brings him the greatest 
happiness? To answer that, it might be helpful at the same time to answer the question, what most discourages a father? Proverbs 17, 21 says, he who sires a fool does so to his sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. And as you know, with the literary style of the Proverbs, many of them come in couplets. And so there's an expression of how something works and how it doesn't work, the good and the bad, what we ought to endeavor to be and do and what we ought to endeavor to not be and not do, what we should surround ourselves with, what we should avoid. I want you to see two truths as we look at this proverb together, Proverbs 23, 24. I want you to see two truths. Number one, I want you to see a father's joy in his child's righteousness. A father's joy in his child's righteousness. Although foolishness brings discouragement to the heart of a parent, wickedness does as well. And again, just in my own experience, not that my experience is a standard by any means, but I think it's probably somewhat like yours, that when you see your child engaging in that which is clearly and obviously wrong, if you have any sense and any love for your children, you correct them. Because you know that that wickedness exhibiting a lack of righteousness brings about God's judgment. Foolishness, wickedness, both of them expressing themselves in all of our children because they are our children. They inherited it from us, let's be honest. We inherited it from our parents, and they inherited it from our ultimate parents, Adam and Eve. And had you been with us three weeks ago in Romans 5, you would have seen in verse 12 that we sinned in Adam. Let's get past this idea that we're born with a clean slate. Let's get past this idea that we somehow are born with a flicker of light and ability to do that which is ultimately pleasing to the Lord. We need a Savior. We need a Savior to save us from that condition into which we are born, and that condition is one of foolishness and wickedness. As I said, I want you to see a father's joy in his child's righteousness. Proverbs 23, 24 begins by saying, the father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. The father who has children who turn out to have a hunger for righteousness finds joy in his children. From our time in 1 Peter, you'll probably remember this. 1 Peter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So you remember Peter speaks to these people in the midst of great difficulty, great trial, beyond what you and I have probably experienced. But if you go back to verse 6, let's read it again. In this you greatly rejoice. And it, it's not unreasonable to think, okay, in the midst of trials, we're greatly rejoicing out. Peter is declaring what is true about the Christian. The one who looks at his surroundings and says, my surroundings, my circumstances are not what determine my level of happiness. 
So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. Again, this excessive joy, joy on top of joy. You might think of it as joy instead of joy. Joy that wasn't enough, replaced by joy that is. Fullness of joy and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, faith alone, the salvation of your souls. This great joy for those to whom Peter wrote came as a result of imputed righteousness. The righteousness of Christ granted by faith and by faith alone, not by works something that couldn't be earned. If we believe what the Bible says about the condition into which we are born, we know that we can't earn it. It's something that he and he alone can grant. But if you go back again to verse 6 one more time, Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice. In what? Well, in what he has just talked about back in verses 3 through 5 where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, that's the hope of the Christian. That is, in fact, what brings about exuberant joy. Anything else brings about self-righteousness and a willingness to glorify self, which ultimately does not result in joy. It simply results in pride and ultimately destruction. But great joy, exuberant joy, comes from the fact that we have been caused to be born again. Why? Verse 4, 1 Peter 1. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. See, the father of the righteous will greatly rejoice because he sees that righteousness welling up in him or her. He sees no effort on the part of his or her child to claim responsibility or credit for that righteousness. He rejoices in the kindness of Christ who has freely granted it in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. How does one do that? How would one, how will one rejoice at the return of Christ with exuberant exultation, rejoicing with exultation when their lives have been filled with difficulty. You know this. I just read it to you. Peter says, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes upon you as if some strange thing is happening to you. It is the kindness of Christ to grant righteousness. In Proverbs 10, verse 3, Solomon says, The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. 
This is the practical reality of the distinction between those who are devoted to righteousness and those who are devoted to wickedness. And by the way, that category of those who are devoted to wickedness includes those who are devoted to self-righteousness, the achievement, the earning of righteousness. That is a wicked concept, the idea that man could somehow achieve God's righteousness. It's, it's really bizarre, and yet it is utterly sinful, and it is, in fact, wicked. Verses 6 to 7, Proverbs 10. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. He hides his sin. He hides those things that he does to others to harm them. The memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. You see that? The person who ultimately rests in the righteousness of Christ will be remembered for that righteousness. But the person who is, in fact, devoted to wickedness, his name will be forgotten. It will disintegrate. No one will care. No one will remember him with any degree of respect or honor. Proverbs 10, verse 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. You know that. You know that. Who do you go to for wisdom? The person who's constantly engaging in hidden and unhidden sin? Let's look at it again. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. You go to those who are devoted to the person of Jesus Christ in a way that proves itself in his or her life. You want wisdom from that person. It's a fountain of life. But it says the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. It hides it. It hides that which is evil. Proverbs 10, 16. The wage of the righteous leads to life, the gain of the wicked to sin. Proverbs 10, 20 to 21, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. A person who is engaged in a hunger for genuine righteousness has a positive impact on other people. And the person who's committed to wickedness ultimately dies Proverbs 10, 24, what the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. You see that? The person who is paranoid, he, he's constantly thinking, oh, I don't want this to happen to me. I don't want that to happen to me. Why? Because he's got a guilty conscience. He knows he deserves what he thinks might happen to him, and ultimately it will. But on the other hand, the righteous person will receive blessing. When the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. See, at this point, at the very least, what we've seen is that a life devoted to righteousness results in blessing. And a life devoted to wickedness results in destruction. But see, it's really difficult and almost impossible for young people to believe this. Because they think, right? I did, you did. We thought that somehow we could overcome the odds. That we could be the exception. And so there is a natural, so to speak, wisdom, if you will, that comes to those who are just older. And yet, as you know, it doesn't always work that way. Age does not guarantee righteousness. Age does not guarantee knowledge. It certainly doesn't guarantee wisdom. Proverbs 10, 28, the hope of the righteous brings joy. You see that? The hope of the righteous brings joy. Where is his hope? Is it in his own ability? That person does not have joy. You know that. You've seen that. Maybe you've experienced it. 
that person becomes angry when he hears the word of God. He has no real joy. His joy is found in his pride, and it's temporary. He thinks highly of himself. He wants to be exalted. He wants to have his self-esteem lifted. He wants to think highly of himself. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the blameless, but destruction to evildoers. The righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. These are just, again, what we referred to earlier as axiomatic realities. They're obviously true. And the person who has lived the longest has the greatest opportunity to have seen it to be true. Don't tell this to the young person who thinks he's so smart. He's outsmarted every person who's lived longer than he has. Lest you get dishonor for yourself. The proverb, by the way, requires that you stop attempting to persuade the person who rests in this foolishness. Stop! It's a command of the Bible. Many times what happens, though, is the person who exhibits the greatest foolishness is the one that we strive with the most. How can you not see reality? What we are commanded to do in the scripture is to let that person experience what he's asking for. And when he does, then his attention will be gained and perhaps he will begin to live in reality. Proverbs eleven eighteen: the wicked earns deceptive wages, but one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. You know, when a man or a woman, when anyone speaks rather easily, and smoothly and uninhibitedly about their deception should cause you great concern. If you do that, if you're, if you're not concerned about how your deception and your dishonesty and your foolishness, your wickedness might impact others, you should be very, very concerned. And the reality is that for those who are willing to do that, they're only willing to do that for the most part with certain people. Very guarded around others. And the wickedness that exhibits a lack of righteousness is often hidden in some circles and not in others. Again, Proverbs eleven eighteen: the wicked earns deceptive wages, but one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who pursues evil will die. Those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished. They think they will. You see this constantly in our society. Those who have persuaded others to believe that they're honest. And some have gone for decades convincing others that they're committed to integrity. And eventually, it all blows up. It all gets exposed. And we might look at that and say, why does it take so long? Because God's timing is better than ours. That's why. God has a plan. God is, in fact, sovereign. He is, in fact, control over all the details. We should rejoice, though, when we see someone's wickedness exposed, especially if they're willing to be instructed. The Proverbs speaks repeatedly of the, the righteous first being exposed for their wickedness. A willingness to be corrected is an exhibition of the very strong likelihood that righteousness is about to find its way into that person's heart. 
But the person who clings to his great reputation, willing to cover over what some already know is true, is proving his devotion to that wickedness. Unwilling to expose it so that the blood of Christ might cover it. I don't need the blood of Christ to cover my sin. I can hide it just as well myself. Proof of personal devotion to evil and wickedness. That proverb goes on to say in verse 20, those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. Verse 21, be assured an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. The offspring of the righteous will be delivered. There is an axiomatic reality that those who are devoted to righteousness bring about a desire for righteousness in their children. Yes, there are exceptions. But certainly you and I have great privilege and opportunity to produce a desire for righteousness in our children. How? How? By being devoted to righteousness. It, it shouldn't be perplexing to us that while we sort of wallow in our disdain or jealousy or disregard for someone or gossip or whatever it may be, it shouldn't surprise us when our children show themselves to be devoted to some level of unrighteousness. Clearly, our righteousness had no impact on them if that's what's happening. Again, I want to emphasize the fact that that can change. But let's be honest, shall we? Let's be honest about these things. Proverbs 11:23, the desire of the righteous ends only in good, the expectation of the wicked in wrath. See that? The person who is not resting in the righteousness of Christ, but somehow believes that his level of wickedness does not warrant wrath is wrong and it will. It will bring about God's wrath. But he thinks that somehow he has evaded God's sovereign control of all things. You're familiar with this from our Savior in Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now let's get super practical here for a moment. Not out loud, not with a show of hands, but think about your life this last week, this last month, this last year. Think about your life, especially right now. What is the passion of your life? Do you find yourself working your way into unrighteous thoughts? Do you reserve time and opportunity for things that are displeasing to God in your mind? Do you take time to dwell on that which is obviously and clearly unrighteous? Abandon it. Reject it. But displace it. Don't just say, you know what, that's, that's, not, that's not what I should do. I should stop doing that. Displace it. By meditating on that which is good. Meditate on that which is righteous. God will impact you if you will. God will nurture in you a hunger for that which pleases him if you will devote yourself to that which pleases him. But the idols of the heart are so strong and so great that it's not unusual for a person to say, well, you know, the, 
there's a much greater devotion to righteousness in my life than unrighteousness. And therefore, I think things are going to be okay. They're not going to be okay. God will not allow an ounce of unrighteousness. He's not pleased with even a little bit of it. The way it's said in the scripture is this. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, if there's a persistent devotion to some pattern of unrighteousness in your life, it's reflective of a heart condition. And so don't just say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut that off. Embrace the balance of Romans 13, 14 that says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lusts. The alternative is hell. That's the alternative. For the person who maintains some devotion to that which is clearly unrighteous and thinks that God's going to wink at it, that he's not going to deal with it, but to think also that the people that I don't want to find out will probably never find out. First of all, that's not the real issue, but second, it's probably wrong. The greater reality is that God does know, and he is aware. He knows the condition of your heart and my heart inside and out. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. You say, I don't know if that's true or not. Your experience is not the standard. You say, I've pursued righteousness before, and it, you know, it didn't really seem satisfying to me. You are not the standard. God is. God has declared that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be satisfied. But it takes time. It takes time and it takes a willingness to surround yourself with people who are endeavoring to do the same thing. But if you surround yourself with people who are not hungering and thirsting after righteousness, it's not going to go well. But let me tell you what's going to be far worse. If you surround yourself with people who are pretending to hunger and thirst after righteousness, if you are influenced by a Pharisee, a person who pretends to be one person and who is certainly not that person, you need to take great measures to separate yourself from that person, if at all possible. Matthew 5.10, in the same sermon of our Lord, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You say, now that I can kind of get my arms around. When I've devoted myself to that which is pure and righteous and true and good and worthy of praise, I've experienced persecution, right, and God says, Christ says, you're blessed when you do that. And you say, I don't know. It didn't feel like a blessing. Give it time. Trust the Lord that as you are, in fact, devoted to the righteousness of Christ, he will bring you satisfaction even in the midst of great difficulty. You say, it's not worth it. I've had too much pain, too much sorrow from people ridiculing me for being a Christian. I doubt that's true. I doubt that's true for, for you or for me. But I suggest that if you will in, endeavor to genuinely set your sights on the righteousness of Christ, that he will grant to you everything that you need and more. Matthew 5, verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Are you a Pharisee? Do you know a Pharisee? Do you know a person who's committed to the whitewashing of his life. He wants to appear to be something, while in fact he is something completely different. Whether we're talking about the distinction between the contents of his mind and the actions of his life, or maybe we're talking about a double life. 
He lives one way in one context and another way in another context. See, that is not the righteousness which grants a person eternal life. That is a false righteousness that was indicative of the Pharisees who were actors. They were hypocrites. They displayed one thing on the street corner in their public prayer life and were devoted to unrighteousness in the privacy of their own lives. But guess what? A lot of them didn't even know that about themselves. A lot of them believed that they were, in fact, earning their way to heaven. And there's a broad array of false religious organizations today that are devoted to exactly that. Put on the show well enough and God will be satisfied. No, no. Unless your righteousness is greater than that of the Pharisees. And by the way, the Pharisees and the scribes were known to be the greatest and most righteous people of the day because of their, their conduct. They had a false righteousness and they were very convincing. Let me tell you what Paul says about these folks. And again, there's a broad, there are a number of broad categories of folks who are devoted to this very self-righteousness. This is what Paul says in Romans 10.1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. And then he goes on to explain the condition of their hearts. Here's what he says. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. It's not that they're completely insincere. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. This is a game-changing passage for the person who thinks he's achieved righteousness that's necessary and will satisfy God doesn't. No one's does. No one can earn it. Paul goes on to say, for Christ, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The point of the law is Christ, that we would read the law and see we can't fulfill the law, but Christ did. And so if our hope is in him, God is satisfied. He absorbed the wrath of God that we deserve for our unrighteousness so we rest in him now if the point hasn't driven home completely just yet listen to this from paul back in romans 1 18 for the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about god is evident within them for god made it evident to them see that false Righteousness is unrighteousness. And the wrath of God will be revealed against that unrighteousness. The person who would say, hey, look at me, right? How do you know you're a Christian? Oh, look at the stuff I've done. It's a false convert. That's a false convert. Look at what I've done all these years. How dare you question my salvation? What does the believer say? Look at Christ. Look at Christ. Look what he did. But how do I know that you're a Christian? Because I look at Christ. I trust in what he did because I became aware of the fact that I couldn't accomplish what God requires. Here's what Paul says about you and me in our pre-Christ condition, Romans 10, verse 10. There is none righteous. 
No. Not even one. Chapter 3, verse 21. Now, apart from the law, not based on your ability to obey the law, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified. They're justified. God has declared them just. We call this the imputation, the declaration, the ascription of righteousness. To whom? To all those who believe in him. And about him, Paul goes on to say, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. A propitiation, a satisfaction. That God is completely satisfied in what Christ accomplished for those for whom he died. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now listen closely. If that didn't do it for you, listen to this. Where then is boasting? Where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We see justification by faith in the book of Romans. We see that justification results in works in the book of James. And without works, we would say that no way, no how is a person justified by faith. But because he is justified by faith, he is justified by his works in the presence of man. And man can say, that guy is clearly justified by faith and I see it in his works. And yet, there will be those who will insist, I'm justified by my works plus my faith. Peter says in chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, that made alive in the spirit. Was that not enough? Was it not enough that the one who is just died for the unjust? Does the unjust have to supply something? Doesn't he have to prove that he wants to be justified? Doesn't he have to earn part of that justification? No, because Christ earned it. Christ displayed it. And he granted it to all those who will have faith in him. 1 Timothy 1.8 But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You see that? The glory of Christ is manifest in his willingness 
to fulfill the law. That because of his fulfillment of the law, the ungodly, that list of those who commit sexual immorality, homosexuality, kidnapping, lying, perjury, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, where is their hope? It's in the gospel. It's in the gospel of peace. It's in the gospel of grace. It's in the gospel of righteousness. That God grants righteousness to sinners. Not those who will do a good job of hiding their sin from the people they don't want to know about it. That is unrighteousness. And God's wrath will be revealed from heaven against it. Does it not make sense that a father would be happy? A father would experience joy if he sees his son or daughter literally coming to grips with the truth of the power of the gospel. I've seen this more times than I can possibly tell you. I've seen parents sit under sound teaching after sitting under false teaching for many years and say, I got to tell my kids. I got to tell my parents. I've seen this happen more times than I can possibly tell you. When the blinders come off, when there's freedom from the constriction and the imprisonment of sin so that proverbs 28 13 comes to life proverbs 28 13 he who conceals his sin will not prosper oh he thinks he will and he pretends to prosper and in some senses he does here and there but it's not real he who conceals his sin will not prosper but but he who confesses and forsakes his transgressions will find compassion. The gospel of compassion says you and all your efforts and willingness, your seeming ability and willingness to achieve that which God requires have failed beyond measure. You cannot measure up to the level of God's righteousness. It is impossible. And yet, when you attempt to do that, you not only do not measure up, you insult the God who has offered you a gospel of compassion. It is offensive, it is insulting, and it is wrathworthy to say that somehow the free gift of eternal life is not enough. I have to do something. 1 Timothy 6.11 says that flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. You see, this comes on the heels of what he has just said in 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 11 speaks of the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The glorious gospel of, of justification by faith alone. And then he says, so get busy. Just as in Philippians 2, you who have always obeyed, he's speaking to Christians, you who have always obeyed, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. God gets the glory and you don't. 
Titus 3, verse 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. See that? Say it again. He saved us not. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. That phrase alone utterly destroys work salvation. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but, but, according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing, by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. By his grace. By grace, through faith, we're justified. Proverbs 13, 25 says it simply. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the stomach of the wicked is in need. Can you imagine? Think of it. And you, you've been there, perhaps. Many of you have been there. Thinking that your eternal life rests on your performance. You needed to have done something to achieve it. If you understand anything about what the Bible has said about the condition into which you were born, Jeremiah 17, 9, telling us that the heart of man is wicked, it's sick. Who can understand it? You know, in Ephesians 2, we're told that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were told that we were made alive in Christ, by Christ. We were dead, not sort of dead. We were dead, unable, totally depraved. Can you imagine if you believe what the Bible says about the condition into which you were born, Proverbs 13, 25 might be a real problem. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite. What is that enough? It's Christ. It's the person of Christ. When your focus is on him, you will find yourself much, much more patient with others who don't meet your standards. Proverbs 13, 25, though, as you know, goes on to say, but the stomach of the wicked is in need. Men, whether you're a biological father or have the privilege of being a spiritual father, you know, Paul spoke of Timothy and Titus as his spiritual sons. The apostle John speaks of those to whom he writes as his little children. Again, whether or not you have biological children, men, you have the privilege, and I say the duty, to be engaged in spiritual parenthood. That you would father young men. Do you know that we have young men in our church who don't have fathers? I became that person when I was eight years old. I became that person when I was eight years old who, who didn't have a father. And before that, it was questionable. And so, over the years, God has blessed me with godly men, my father-in-law primarily, to show me an example of what it means to be saved by faith, to be justified by grace through faith, and therefore to be devoted to a life of righteousness, not a life of gossip, sexual immorality, dishonesty, covering up of sin rather than exposing sin. There have been other men along the way. I sent a text to three or four men this morning. Now, thank you for the lasting impact on my life. One in particular, my dear friend, Clayton Erb. 
I sent Clayton a text yesterday knowing that he's up early on Sunday mornings and got a lot to do. Probably wouldn't look at his phone. I said, Clayton, my dear, dear friend, best of Father's Days to you. You are a treasured blessing to me. There is no measuring the impact that man has had on my life. There is no measuring the impact that he has had on my life. Ministering to me, serving me, but showing me what it is to be a man of grace, a man who is gracious to other people, who loves other people, who pours into other people. Clayton says back to me, thanks so much, Todd. It just makes my heart very glad that you remember me on Father's Day. With five boys, you should have a great day tomorrow. Lord bless. Much love. Clayton has no biological children. And I can remember when I was first getting to know him and spending a lot of time with him. And I was really reveling in the joy and the, and the wonderfulness of Clayton's life over the years. And I had the blessing of this friendship. And he said, well, you know, one of my greatest regrets is that I've never had a son. Then and now, I think, Clayton, I'm your son. The impact you've had on me is immeasurable. So men, again, whether you have biological children or not, if you do and if you don't, you have a huge opportunity to help others understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone that Christ freely grants the righteousness that God requires of mankind that man cannot achieve. Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the point of the law. Christ fulfilled the law. Christ obeyed the law, and you haven't, and you can't, and you never will fulfill the law. You are commanded to obey the law, but you will never, ever fulfill the law as Christ did. Set your sights on him and be a spiritual father. Be a man of grace, of faith, of compassion. God will use you in ways you might not ever have imagined. Father, thank you that you have shown to us a father's joy in his child's righteousness. We don't really need human illustrations to understand this, but we thank you for them. But what we really need is a rich and honest biblical expression of the person of Christ who fulfilled the law. Were man able to fulfill the law, there would be no need for the Christ. And so it is a mockery to declare that we might be saved by faith plus works. God, I ask that you would help the men of our church to be humble, to never ever point to their achievements when asked, what does it mean to have eternal life? But may they simply point to the person to whom they point every day as they trust in him. May they know and love and enjoy the perfections and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that he would be on display, that our lives would be impacted by who he is, that we would hunger and thirst after righteousness, that we might be satisfied in the righteousness of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.